All right, so tonight we're looking at uh, Genesis 6 through 9, really. We're going to take a selection of passages through there, not read the entirety of them for sake of time. So you can see them on your bulletin there. So this is uh, God's word from Genesis 6, 5 through 14. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to, to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And then Genesis seven seventeen through 24. It says, The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and, and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And then 8.20 through 22. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And this is after the flood has receded and they've come out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And then finally, chapter 9, 8 through 17 says, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will will remember my covenant 
that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we consider his word further. Heavenly Father, we have just read parts of a very sobering story, of a true story, one of your judgment, one that we might have a number of reactions to, but one that no doubt we need help understanding, not necessarily because of the story itself, but because of our hard hearts. So, Father, would you please, as a, as a good Father, as a gracious God, would you give us your Holy Spirit here tonight to illuminate your word to us, to open our hard hearts so that we might believe and our, and our blind eyes so that we might see. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week, uh, you know, struggled with the opening illustration, i.e. didn't have one. And so this week, we're, uh, we're going to sort of take a little bit of a different tack. Uh, this, could go, this could go well or it could go poorly. We'll see. All right, so maybe when you were growing up, if you grew up in church, uh, you very well might have learned some sort of song about Noah's Ark, right? Maybe some are coming to mind. Uh, I, I hope so. Uh, one of the ones, I, at least as best as I recall, I remember. Um, and then I, I got the, uh, the lyrics off, you know, the internet like everybody else would. So... Can you fill in the blank? The Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. Okay, all right. This is at least going to work a little bit. All right, get my children out of the muddy, muddy. The Lord said to Noah, build me an arky, arky. It rained and it poured for 40 daisy, daisies, daisies, daisies. It almost drove the animals crazy, crazies. The sun came out. And dried up the landy landy, and everything was fine and dandy dandy. Okay, I don't know about you, but having just read the actual account of what happened, there seems to be somewhat of a discrepancy, right? Between the way we tend to think about it, the way we tend to teach our children about it, uh, and, and maybe some of the reality in it, right? Um, it was just a... Is it fair to call it a floody floody? Right? <laughs> and that, like, the biggest thing that we're worried about, like, oh, God, please, you know, we need to get out of the mud? Um, let's see. Yeah, and uh, what are we... Re- oh, after 40 days of flooding, right? It's so serious. So serious that the animals... Were, it was just driving them crazy, right? <laughs> and then, of course, it's all topped off with the fact that the sun came out It dried it up. Everything was fine and dandy. Except for the fact that literally every single living organism on the planet was dead. Right? Beyond that, fine and dandy. So why do we do that? Why do we treat the story of Noah's Ark and the flood the way we do? Right? We make, you know, cute songs out of it and cute stories and uh, bath 
bath toys or we have them in our, everybody's got them at their house. I'm not saying they're wrong. Um, because there is something, there is something really uh, attractive about the story. And yet at the same time, right, if you just read it, this is, in some sense, this is not for kids. Right? This is the story of God destroying the world. Uh, it's a story of God bringing judgment. So which is it, right? Is this, is it a, is it a, um, is it an attractive story uh, of, of, about God and how he loves people? Or is it a story of, of sobering judgment? Is it terrifying or is it beautiful? And I think the answer, if you're, you know, if you've been around a little bit, you probably know what's coming. I think the answer is yes. Right? That it's both of those. This semester, we're studying through the first half of Genesis, right? First book of the Bible, and we're, we're saying every week that Genesis is like season one of all of life, right? That just like if you want to understand a television show, that's, if you want to jump in the middle of a television show, the best way to do that is to actually go back to the beginning and, and watch the backstory, right? That's where you get the foundations of everything else to help you understand the middle, and so as you and I want to understand life around us, understand ourselves, who God is, what better place to go than to start at the beginning, right, and see the backstory? And so as we begin to contemplate, what is God like? Is God a God of grace? Is God a God of judgment? Does he bring judgment on sin? And, what, and what's that all about? Well, I think that's what we're going to try to uncover is definitely what we see here in the story. That God is just and he brings judgment, but he also, in the midst of judgment, brings great grace. And so I want you to see that. We're going to look at two main points. First, we're going to see the reality and the rationale of judgment. And then secondly, we're going to look at the redemption in the midst of judgment, or redemption from judgment. All right, so first, the reality and rationale of judgment. Um, So, right, yeah, this story really is, in so many ways, about God's judgment, it's about God bringing justice. And it really might be hard to swallow. And I understand that. Um, I understand that you might have a, you know, any number of reactions. Why would God wipe out everything on the earth? Because that, the text is very clear that he did that. Why would he decide to get rid of mankind? How can that be okay? First thing that I want to say is this. I want you to hear me to say... That talking about God's judgment is not something... We're not doing that tonight or at any point. We're not doing that because I think it's, it's fun and I think it's easy um, and, or for any reason like that. It's definitely not those things. It's not something that I necessarily enjoy. We're going to talk about, I think, why it's a good thing in just a minute. So I want you to hear me, I want you to hear me say at least that this is hard. It is hard to deal with, but it's real. And that's why we're going to take time to talk about it. Because the scripture does. And we, I feel like we would actually be doing you, you and we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we sort of ignored judgment. So it's not easy, but we're going to, we're going to dig in. Let me offer a few thoughts about the reality and rationale of judgment. First, I want you to see that it's very clear from the text. The text goes out of its way to show that God brings judgment because of of mankind's wickedness, because of evil. Right? 6.5 says that man's wickedness was great. 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 says the earth was corrupt, filled with violence. Verse 12 again says the earth and all flesh had corrupted itself, right? The text is going out of its way to show that, right, think about what we've learned earlier in Genesis. That God built mankind to be his image, to rule on the earth. And yet now he essentially has done nothing but turn it into wickedness and violence. He's rejected God, and now it's filled with, with evil. And so God brings his judgment on evil, not just arbitrarily on people. He brings it on wicked people, quite frankly, that deserve it. Secondly, and this, this thought follows directly from that, I actually want to bring, bring your attention to the fact that you, act, you and I actually want this to be true. Now, here's what I mean. We all want for there to be justice in the world. Right? We want for wrongs to be made right. We want people that do evil to be brought to account, to be punished, for judgment to be brought. Right? Take some sort of maybe a mundane example of uh, if you take a test and it's an objective test and you scratch and claw, let's say a class, right? Not just test, but you go through a class and you scratch and claw for points and you get an A, right? It adds up objectively and you get an A and the teacher just doesn't like you and they just, they report a C. Well, you're going to be upset about that and rightly so. You're going to want justice brought to that situation, right? The first thing you're going to say is that's not fair. And you're going to appeal to the university to do something about it. What if somebody attacked somebody in your family and and physically assaulted them or even murdered them and they stood trial for it and the judge or the jury, whoever, even though they admitted their guilt, the judge or jury just, just let them go. You're going to be upset about that because it's not fair. You want justice. And right, we don't have to dream up hypotheticals. It's easy to look around, just, you know, open your news page, wherever you get your news. Look around you. Uh, Some time ago I was reading an article, this one sticks in my mind, uh, because basically a guy was babysitting his girlfriend's uh, infant, and and the, the baby just would not stop crying. So he put it in the freezer. If you put a baby in the freezer, it'll eventually stop crying. Now look, when you hear that, if you have a pulse, and I can tell by your gasps, right, that are, that are appropriate, you just burn inside. You, something should happen. Justice should be brought. That guy just doesn't, he shouldn't just be able to get away with it. So how do we apply that? What does that mean? Well, I want you to see that, that God, the fact that God brings justice and judgment is actually in some way very comforting to you and to me. It should be. Because what it means is that God values you. That God, it actually gives you great dignity. Or or rather, let me say this, it reveals the dignity that you have. That God instilled in you. Because God will not allow sin against you to go unpunished. He cares about you so much 
that he's not just willing to let it go. And certainly you have to, I think on some level, appreciate that and want it. So what does that mean? Especially for you ladies. Here's one thing that it means. It means that what he did to you was not okay. That God does not think it's okay. Even if it seems like he got away with it. And maybe in some uh, earthly sense, maybe he will. But it means that, that God looks at you, even though you, when you're tempted to think, evidently, God doesn't care. Maybe I deserve this. The fact that God brings justice, right? I want you to see that it, it was not okay with God. He brings judgment. Or maybe you've been sinned against by your parents, by your friends, people that are close to you. I want you to see that God's judgment says it's not okay. I care about it a whole lot. You're such a big deal to me that my justice will come. It's not okay for somebody to treat you like that, abandon you like that, treat you like you don't matter. All right, so I hope that you see that we all want justice on some level. Um, But if you think about it, right, it's not too hard to see that that comes with a problem. Because we always want justice for evil done done to us. But if judgment's going to come and it's going to be just judgment, just justice, then it's going to have to come for us as well. And because we're all sinners, because we, have, we all have violence in our heart, then judgment is going to come for us. And I want you to think about this. Judgment is always going to be proportional to the person, to the offended party, to the greatness of the offended party. The amount of judgment and justice that's going to come against you as an offender is going to be proportional to the greatness, so to speak, of the party offended. Think about if you punched one of your, uh, you know, your roommate, your classmate, one of your peers. That's not a good thing to do. Don't recommend it. But if you punched one of your peers, it's possible that you don't suffer any consequences for that, right? Like you could talk about it and they could say, it's, it's okay, I get you know, and you talk it over. But imagine if you went and you were meeting with the dean of your department and you decided to punch your dean, you're going to experience some consequences, necessarily. You know, you might get suspended, expelled from school, possibly arrested, something like that. If you punched a police officer, you are going to jail, right? Like, that's just going to happen. What if somehow you had the opportunity and you punched the President of the United States? What's, it's not funny. Come on, people. What's going to happen? You're going to disappear. We're not going to know what happens to you, right? Now, it's the same act, right? The exact same act is going to to result in different judgment on you. And it's based on the, the, the sort of greatness, in quotes, of the party that was offended. So what if we're talking about, right? Hopefully you see the point. What if we're talking about the creator of everything? What if we're talking about offending a God that is holy, holy, holy? That somehow, whatever it means, that, he, that he, He's so perfect that He dwells in light that you can't even get near. Because the Bible's clear that all of our sin, even when it's against other people, is ultimately a sin and offense against Him. 
So that means that judgment is going to be severe, right? And I think that begins to bring judgment a little closer to home, right? That that judgment is not just for those people over there or the really bad people or the people that do the really bad things, right? That it's judgment for those with violence in their hearts, right? Did you notice that? That it's it's the things inside of us, right? Uh, God says it's the inclination of man's heart is always evil all the time. And so if you begin to look at your heart, if you begin to take stock on the inside, I don't think it would be too long before you begin to see the root of violence and hatred and evil in your own heart, right? Now granted, it may not look, it may not look, you know, manifest itself in some sort of terribly overt violent action. But the root of it's there. When you look at somebody and you think, what an idiot. When you mentally write somebody off, when you pass along, when you pass along that little piece of gossip, right? You're doing violence to them. When you when you hear about something bad happening to them, and and you just sort of enjoy that a little bit, that's the root. That's the root of violence. And all that can be happening on the inside while our outside looks very nice and presentable and very Baylor, right? Very on the up and up and everything's good. But we're no different. You and I are no different than the people in Genesis 6 before the flood. We deserve judgment and it's coming. And it's, yeah, the flood is coming. And again, I don't, I take, in some sense, I take no pleasure in saying that, that judgment is coming, but it is. Um, The New Testament bears that out. In fact, it uses Noah and the flood in several places to talk about the coming judgment of God. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 24, as were the days of Noah, so will be the, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. See what Jesus is saying, right? That there is is an ultimate judgment coming. And you're not going to feel like it's coming. Just like the people in Noah's day were most likely laughing at him and thought it was ridiculous, like the dude's building an ark and in the middle of this desert, essentially. Um, he had been preaching for like 120 years, we're going to talk about that in a minute, about the fact that this was coming. Like, yeah, right, whatever. But then one day the judgment comes. And we don't have time to talk about it, we're running out of time as it is. But go home and read Romans 1. Because the New Testament, yes, there is an ultimate judgment coming one day. But God, God talks about that there is a very real sense in which His judgment is already here. And it's present in our sin. That, that as God gives us over to our sin, that that's the judgment in and of itself. So the flood is coming. And so, look, I get it. At this point, you're probably thinking, like, man, love RUF. Definitely coming back because it was a lot of fun. Talk about helpful, cheery stuff. And I hope that you do come back. But I want you to see that, that really judgment, the reality of judgment, 
and what's facing us all, it's actually necessary for there to be good news in a sense. That really, this is the, this is the front door. You have to go through the front door, so to speak, of the reality of judgment. Because as we're going to see and bear out in this next point for just a few minutes, God is amazingly gracious. And we will not be able to appreciate that grace if we don't appreciate the reality of the judgment. All right, so let's take a look at that. The redemption of or from judgment. Uh, Like I said, this story really is, while it is about judgment, it's also very, in some ways startlingly so, about God's grace. Um, and I want to highlight three things real quick. Uh, three things, two of them real fast at first. All right, so first, I want you to see that God grieves over sin. Did you notice that? Look in verse 6.6. 6. It says, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Right? You hear the feeling involved there. Right? His heart, his, God's heart is breaking over this. The word grieved there is the same word uh, in Genesis 34 where Jacob, Jacob's sons learn of their sister being raped. They're grieved about this. They're pained by it. Um, when David learns of his son's death, he's grieved. The same word. Uh, a couple other examples we don't have time for. But you get the picture, right? That, this, that God's heart is broken over judgment. Right? Think about Quick illustration. Imagine if you were the parent, you know, the, the, the guy that shot up the, the junior college in Oregon, right? He killed nine people. Uh, apparently his mom was at home and somebody, you know, watched the news and, and knew her son went to that school. And so she goes up and, you know, tells her neighbor, like, you know, I hope your son's okay. Can you imagine if you're the parent? And not only do you find out your son is dead, but he's the one that caused all that. Can you imagine the grief? Right? Can you imagine the grief over, over his life and just how he, he, he's just wrecked it? What he had done with his life. How he had inflicted so much pain on other people. Right? You get, you get the picture. And so what I want you to see is that God doesn't step into this lightly. God doesn't bring judgment just sort of from high on his throne and just sort of pass it out, you know, sprinkle it down and just, you know, no big deal. Like, oh, got out of line. Yeah, I think we can tend to think that God sort of love, almost waits for us to step out of line, right? Like, just put one toe and zap, right? And it's just hilarious to him. That's not the picture of the God of the Bible. It's a God that grieves over his judgment, grieves over sin. He actually feels the pain of evil and judgment, maybe actually even more than we do, and we're going to end with that in just a minute. Secondly, very quickly, we've got to hurry. I want you to see that God is patient in his judgment. Where? Uh, from the genealogy in chapter 5, we can see that the flood takes place about at least, at least about 1,700 years after Cain killed Abel. 1,700 years at least. It might have been a lot longer. Um, secondly, like I mentioned earlier, Second Peter 2 tells us that Noah was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. And it seems pretty clear that for 120 years, Noah went around preaching about the coming judgment and repent and turn to God. So it's not like God didn't tell people. And then lastly, the covenant that he makes, right? 
Uh, again, Peter brings it up. Uh, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then in verse 10 he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Right? God does not rush into judgment. He is utterly patient. He is very measured. Because He wants people to repent and turn to Him. He takes no pleasure in the, in the destruction of the wicked. Thirdly and lastly along these lines, I want you to see that God's very gracious. And yes, the other two were about God's grace, but we're going to zero in, and I want you to see that God saves people from judgment. Right? Obviously, God saves Noah and his family, but why does God save Noah? The answer is in verse 6, 8. We read it. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And now that Hebrew word for favor also often is translated very simply grace. Noah found grace with God. Right? A lot of times you hear this preached and it's something like, you need to be like Noah. Noah was the best guy that there was. And that's why God saved him. Looks around, i got a lot of bad people, I'll take the best one and just work with it. And so you need to be like Noah. You need to have, uh, you need to have uh, be faithful like Noah. Um, and sure, while you should have faith like Noah, um, what I want you to see is that Noah was a sinner just like everybody else. Right? If you don't believe me, read the next, or it was a chapter, uh, later in chapter 9. So God wipes everybody off the planet to, to get rid of sin. And yet Noah and his family are still there. And when they get off, there's this weird incident where Noah, so, I mean, think about this. Noah has, Noah did the whole ark thing, right? God shut the door on the ark. It, God himself shut the door. He experienced all that. When he gets off, he gets hammered out of his mind. Lays in his tent, drunk and naked. And it's clear that he has sin in his heart just like everybody else. But the New Testament, Hebrews tells us that Noah, it says, uh, Hebrews eleven seven says, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So why, what was different about Noah? In one sense, nothing. But he looked at God. He looked at God's offer of grace. And he, he took it. He took refuge in God. He saw that the flood was coming for him. That he did deserve it. And that he needed, he needed refuge. He needed saving all right, but if you're thinking critically, you might realize that that still leaves us a problem, right? Still leaves us something unresolved. Because if God takes sin so seriously that he won't let it go unpunished, that he's always going to bring judgment on evil, and I just said that Noah is evil just like everybody else, but he found grace because God is gracious. And that Noah didn't do anything, you know, he didn't bring anything to the table to fix that. So how can God just do that? How can God just forgive Noah or forgive us? And the answer is that the flood is not the most dramatic example of God's judgment. That God is actually going to do something from Noah's perspective then. God was going to do something even far more dramatic 
then bring a flood on the earth and bring judgment that way. He was actually going to... Because Noah didn't fix the problem, did he? Right? Noah wasn't the Savior, but he pointed to the Savior. Right? We've talked about the seed of how God promised a hero was going to come. And he's going to come through Noah. The first hint of it's in 821, where Noah gets off the boat and he offers a sacrifice. He offers a sacrifice because he recognizes that God is a God that accepts a substitute. And then God gives him the, puts the bow in the sky, right? Now what's that all about? We think rainbow, and it, it was a rainbow, but the text just says, my bow, Right? To Noah, to anyone in that day, that a bow is an implement of war. It's like bow and arrow, right? And God is showing Noah, I am taking my, I'm taking a symbol of my judgment. I'm taking my, um, yeah, the picture of my war against you, and and I'm I'm going to hang it up, so that my judgment is not pointing at you anymore. Because people can't fully bear his judgment and live. And so God was going to have to take it for us. Right? And so the fulfillment of that promise of the hero comes through Noah's great, 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 you know, on and on and on, great grandchild, Jesus. Right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. So in other words, God had to, God had to come himself. The flood didn't do it all. God had to come himself and take the flood. The more dramatic event is when Jesus hangs on a cross and he takes the full weight of the flood on himself for for me and you. He took every drop so that you and I so that you and I can find ourselves wrapped up in him. Gosh, we don't have enough time to finish all this. The New Testament in 1 Peter tells us that uh, Three says this, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See what Peter's saying. He's saying the flood waters were the waters of judgment, and at the same time, they were the waters of salvation to Noah. The same waters that brought judgment and killed everyone else lifted that ark up to salvation. And he says, that's like what happens in Jesus. Right? When God dumps the flood on Jesus, what, what, is, what is judgment was a terrible act. That exact same thing is salvation to me and you. Because he takes it in our place. So what does that mean? I'm going to end with this last thought. It means that if you're in Christ, that if you find yourself in Him, right? The Bible says that a lot. In Him. If you, find your, if you trust Him in faith, it means that when your conscience rises up and accuses you, and it says something like, you know you're a pervert. You know you're a liar. You know you're a drunk. You know you're whatever. And you can hear the flood waters coming. 
right? When, you can, when, when, that, when your conscience rises up and you hear the waters of judgment coming, if you're in Christ, it means that those flood waters will not touch you. Because they swallowed up Jesus. And they will not touch you. Because the same thing that was judgment for him is salvation to me and you. And that's an offer to you. That's an invitation. I hope you'll take it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for that truth and for the reality that we can find ourselves we can find ourselves uh, in you. Just like Noah found himself safe inside of an ark, we can find our lives wrapped up safely inside of you and, and the judgment comes and you take it. And there's none left for us. Father, I pray that you would impact that, press that truth home to us tonight. And we ask it in your name. Amen.